You are listening to Making Contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Joining us now is author, analyst, and oil industry expert Antonia Yuhas. She's been following BP since even before the Deepwater Horizon spill, going back to her 2008 book, The Tyranny of Oil, the World's Most Powerful Industry and What We Must Do to Stop It. Antonia, welcome back to Making Contact. Thanks for having me. Did I say everything right? Okay. So we're speaking just about five years after the Gulf Coast BP spill. Um, Paint a picture for us. How does it look down there environmentally and, and also in terms of the human and economic impact? Has the area recovered? Um, The area certainly hasn't recovered. It's hard to paint one picture, though, of the Gulf of Mexico. I think most people don't appreciate how big of an area we're talking about. Five states, the ninth largest body of water on the planet, um, an enormous, economically diverse and rich um, area, a hugely populated area of people and wildlife. And so there's sort of every impact that you can imagine. Um, There are areas of extreme economic devastation, extreme environmental uh, devastation, um, places where the oyster, um, the amount of oysters that come in from the dock is 75% less than it was before the oil spill. Communities of fisher folk that haven't recovered at all or just gone from the Gulf of Mexico. Um, People in areas with extreme um, human health consequences um and then there are areas that are you know recovering that are economically recovered and and people whose health has recovered um you can go and see beautiful beaches you can also go and see beaches with um tar balls with oil tar balls basically you've got bp's oil um uh, stuck in many places of the gulf of mexico you've got a blanket of oil on the bottom of the ocean You've got oil that's floating around in the sort of shallow waters, and some of it is these huge um, tar mats that get broken up by the waves, and pieces of the tar mats come to shore, particularly during storm season. And during storm season, you often see huge mats that come to shore. Um, Most recently, just last month, 25,000 pounds of BP tar mats was being picked up off of beaches um, in Louisiana. That's sand mixed with oil. Um, so that's there, and the beautiful beaches are there. I mean, we'll, we'll probably, just like with the Exxon Valdez, for decades still be trying to pick up the pieces and understand the consequences. Um, and just like Exxon Valdez, they will be devastating for decades, but it doesn't mean that people shouldn't go to Alaska. It doesn't mean that people aren't still living in Alaska, um, and it doesn't mean that people shouldn't appreciate the Gulf of Mexico. So I think that both both the trauma and the ongoing trauma of the disaster are important to look at and the reality that this is still a beautiful part of the United States are important to keep in mind. So in that partial recovery, um, how has BP done in terms of making things right, making people whole, cleaning up uh, the natural habitat, both through their own goodwill and and also being forced to through uh, legal means and lawsuits? How has BP done? Um, So one very good thing that happened was that in the wake of the Valdez, there was a new piece of legislation passed. That's something that we haven't done basically at all, except for one piece of legislation um, since the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Something called the Oil Pollution Act was uh, passed in in the wake of the Valdez. And the Oil Pollution Act required for the first time that the polluter had to pay. And BP had a lot of requirements put on it that made it so that the company had to be in charge of cleanup, 
of stopping the um, blowout at the source of the disaster um, had to be ready to do lots of things. It wasn't ready to do most of those things, but it was required to do a lot of things it wouldn't have otherwise done. Um, so it so it did have to do cleanup, and it has had to pay um, economic benefits um, to some people. Um, that said, BP has also fought every step of the way um, to uh, it's fought the economic settlement that it agreed to all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, there is a, a really historic change that happened, which was that BP was forced to agree to a human health benefits settlement, which said, which acknowledged that exposure to oil and exposure, exposure to the dispersants does have human health consequences. 200,000 people were eligible for that settlement, but BP has fought very aggressively against that settlement after signing it. So 200,000 people were eligible. Only 10,000 people have even put in um, an application. Of that, 148 have received payment, which is shocking. After the amount of time that I've spent in the Gulf witnessing the extreme human health consequences, and years after reporting on extreme human health consequences, to see that nobody is benefiting essentially from that really historic agreement um, to reach a settlement is shocking. Um, and in addition, BP has certainly argued um, to, of the finding of scientists of ongoing environmental and human health and economic consequences of the spill. And fortunately, there are legal proceedings that should hold BP to account, one of which is the Natural Resources Damage Assessment, which is, again, something that we got out of the Oil Pollution Act, which is that there has to be an assessment taken of every impact on natural resources, what damages happened, and what money is needed to make them whole. That assessment is still underway. And when that's over, BP is definitely going to be forced to pay many billions of dollars. Also, because of the release of the largest offshore oil spill in world, world history, um, what most people would argue is 5 million gallons of oil, um, BP has to pay a per barrel, well, BP has to pay a fine under the Clean Water Act for that amount of oil released. Um, in the legal proceedings that are underway right now in New Orleans, which have been going on for five years, the judge, uh, Judge Carl Barbier, first found that BP was grossly negligent in causing the blowout and that both Halliburton and Transocean, which are two of the largest energy services companies in the world, um, were both negligent. It found that BP was putting profit above all else, was trying to um, look out for time, look out for money, and was not adhering to the many other things that it is required to do under federal regulations, which is to protect its employees, the environment, to make sure that things don't blow up. Um, and it didn't do that. So that was a good finding. Um, but then most recently, the judge found that BP wasn't grossly negligent in everything that came after. Basically, that it wasn't grossly negligent in its inability to stop the blowout in the, in the way that it handled the oil spill and its lack of preparation or planning for either of those two, two events, which is just a, a terrible uh, finding from my perspective. Um, if you look at um, every, every um, 
every regulation that was in place, well, let's not go that way. Um, hang on. <laughs> my motorcycle's gotten my way. Um, so that was a terrible finding. And what that did was it first made it that there's no opportunity for punitive damages. And it opens the way for the judge to have more leeway in his determination of actually how much BP's fine could be. The government was arguing for an $18 billion fine, and that is how it should be. That's a per barrel of oil spilled fine that amounts to the highest, um, the highest rate that BP could be exposed to. Now that the judge has ruled that BP wasn't grossly negligent in all of the post-blowout activities, that fine could go down immeasurably. Um, the, the only amount of money that the judge is required to fine BP is $140,000 total, which is as low as it could go. I would be completely floored if that's what actually happened, but that's the only regulatory requirement. So somewhere between... 18 billion and 140,000 is where the judge is going to land. These recent rulings make me very concerned that it's going to be significantly lower than what it should be. And what about BP's uh, public image? They were suffering for a while there. Uh, we remember the the spill cam, the live cam of uh, oil spewing in, under the ocean, the company CEO stepped down. Since then, what have they done PR-wise to help build their image back up, and, and do you think it's worked? Um, BP has had a lot of commercials, uh, constant commercials on television, saying that everything's great in the Gulf and showing pictures of um, sunny beaches and white beaches and healthy sea life and people frolicking. Um Part of that was actually required of the company, which is that they were required to help with renewing tourism uh, in the Gulf states. But the majority of it was was PR. And those commercials, believe me, uh, very much aggravate most people uh, in the Gulf who are looking out and seeing tarballs and no more oysters and no more fish and no more fishing communities um, and contaminated seafood. And then they see commercials for you know, everything back to normal in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, I think, I don't think BP has succeeded in saving its image, but I do think do think that it has succeeded in convincing most of the public that everything's back to normal in the Gulf of Mexico um, and that they did the best that they could and that it's, you know, well past time to move on. And I think most people moved on fairly quickly in the United States from this disaster, um, at least mentally. Obviously, the country physically hasn't recovered. Um, but in terms of things like um, BP's share price, it still isn't back to where it was before the oil spill. Um, its uh, dividends per share are still not back to where they were. Um, it's had a huge sell-off of its assets, about $38 billion um, already, and it has another $10 billion planned. Um, its um, amount of oil that it's been producing each year has declined dramatically because of the sell-off of assets. Um, it's historically already had a, a big problem with um, what's called its rever uh, reserve replacement ratio, which is how much it has in reserves versus how much it's producing. 
which means that its reserves have been fairly low while it produces. And that what it, what that looks like um, when you're looking at the company is that they don't have a lot of oil in the future, and so you're not going to be as interested in, that, in them as a com- as a company. That was a problem even before the disaster, which was actually one of the reasons why then CEO Tony Hayward was so aggressively going after oil anywhere, everywhere, under all circumstances, no matter what it took. And that's what drove him so deep into the Gulf of Mexico, making risky, uh, terrible decisions. And um, it's one of the reasons, only one, of why the disaster happened. Um, And that hasn't been, that hasn't changed. So there's a lot of rumors that have been swirling that BP could be a takeover target. And that's actually, those rumors have been swirling for years, but now it looks way more likely because just this year, in the most recent reportings, BP's profits completely collapsed um, as a result of reduced production and the collapse in the price of oil. And the rumors that have been swirling most recently are Exxon is a potential buyer of BP, which would just be tragic. the combination of that much power. BP is still, all of those numbers that I just gave you aside, it's still, um, or was as of last year when the most recent global um, global analyses were presented, so not using this year's data. As of last year, it was the fifth largest corporation on the planet, still. It's an enormous corporation. It, before this year's collapse, had made $23 billion in profits. Um, before this year's collapse, almost $400 billion in revenue. This is a huge corporation. So if you combine that with Exxon, which is itself, obviously, an enormous corporation, that is very worrisome. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't, I certainly don't think a solution is, is to have BP bought by Exxon. So, you know, the company, um, maybe like, like the Gulf itself is, continues to suffer uh, in many ways and is recovered um, recovered in many ways. So talking about the size of BP, uh, the company is not just in the Gulf Coast. Um, and I know there was a spill in Lake Michigan in 2014, going back to uh, before the Gulf Coast spill, a spill in Alaska 2006, an explosion in Texas 2005. What's the company's global environmental reputation uh, at the moment playing into those you know i'm sure that plays into the to the the company's value and its reputation i mean it's that string of disasters that you named um the the bp texas city refinery disaster uh which killed 15 workers and injured another 180 people was the worst uh, domestic refinery incident um, in U.S. history, which was then followed just a few years later by the Deepwater Horizon, the worst oil spill in the world history. Um, th- those incidents in Alaska and others um, have continued to, you know, demonstrate the failures of this company um, and have continued to damage its name. And, and again, those are among the reasons why it's been talked about as a takeover target for so long. Um, but at the end of the day, when it comes to, you know, unfortunately to investors in a company, uh, they seem to continue to just look at the bottom line and the company does still make money. Um, 
And its political power still remains, you know, just seemingly untarnished. It's like one of those, you know, companies that never dies. Um, and, and it's um, part and parcel to the oil industry as a whole. We have giant companies that are have been giants for 100 years. Um, one of the reasons why they've become so big is that they're the spawns of Standard Oil, even BP. One of the reasons why BP is so large in the United States is because it entered the U.S. by buying Amoco and Arco, which are both themselves post-breakup companies of Standard Oil, just like Exxon and Mobil are the two largest post-breakup pieces of Standard Oil, which are now Exxon Mobil. Um, you know, we're sort of just watching this slow, if and if Exxon bought BP, and this just slow reconjoining of the Standard Oil beast. Um, and that size brings with it enormous political power, which enables a company like BP to just keep getting contracts, keep um, finding new places to produce in spite of you know, the, the problems that it causes. And in the Gulf of Mexico, BP is back in the Gulf of Mexico. They never stopped. One of the very first new leases signed after the Deepwater Horizon disaster was for BP. Um, they have more rigs operating the Gulf now than they did before the disaster. They're also partnering with every other company. Um, and of course, BP is has its own unique power behind it, which is the British government. It's no longer a British company, but it still very much has that relationship to the British government and history with the British government. And that helps it um, just stay, keep staying, even after all these these terrible incidents. But it's also obviously not unique in the oil sector for causing horrible accidents and horrible um, uh, disasters. Accidents is the wrong word, disasters. Um, so, you know, it gets to just in some ways shrug off the problems by saying this is just, you know, it's a, it's a cost of doing business in the oil sector, which is that we're going to cause horrible disasters. And they're right. And has their size, or, or I guess I should ask, uh, and their size obviously allows them to influence regulators as well. Um, how, how has the federal government and, and state of Louisiana done uh, in terms of holding BP accountable? And has there been any sort of changed approach to regulating uh, offshore drilling or other aspects of the oil industry? Or, or is this just going to happen again? Yeah, BP's political influence is certainly exercised within the United States as well through its political contributions and political weight. Um, there's been um, basically no change in, in regulations in the offshore drilling industry. Um, I would say that the attitude of the Obama administration is different from the attitude of the Bush administration. There's definitely a, I think, greater attempt to hold the companies uh, in check. There's been an increase in the number of, for example, of um, investigators that are assigned to check the, the rigs than there was before. Um, the administration did a, a good thing, which was separating out um, the agency that collected money from offshore drilling from that which regulates them, which is good. Um, it has created a, a whole new set of, of, of regulatory agencies that oversee the industry. But that's really it. Um, in terms of substance, in terms of all the things that we know went wrong 
um, among them being that it wasn't just BP that didn't know what to do in the wake of the disaster. None of the oil companies operating in the Gulf knew what to do. They were all sitting around the same table, and none of them knew what to do. None of them had planned. None of them had prepared. None of them had the right equipment. None of them seemed, you know, when I look at it, um, they all knew that a blowout was the worst thing that could happen. And they all planned in their papers for a blowout that could that was potentially three times larger than what actually happened. Yet they also didn't have anything to do it, about it. They knew it could happen. They knew it would be big. They knew it would be bad. But there was nothing to prevent it, nothing to stop it, nothing to clean it up. And the regulators didn't make them either. And that's still the case. So... Um, one of the things we learned is that the blowout preventer, which is the very aptly named piece of equipment that's supposed to stop a blowout, basically doesn't work. They work like 50% of the time. That seems to me not an acceptable <laughs> amount of risk, but that's still the same piece of equipment that we're using. And not only that, but the regulators aren't overseeing it appropriately. So what happened in the BP case is that the blowout preventers, which only works 50% of the time, is supposed to be checked um, every five years. The Deepwater Horizon blowout preventer had been out for 10 years and hadn't been checked once, and it ran out of batteries. That's what happened. It ran out of batteries, and so it couldn't close. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But that's still, I mean, the good news is we have more regulators. Now, hopefully, what they will do is actually write some regulations that they can enforce that will stop this from happening. But I don't have a lot of faith with that. So deepwater drilling is getting, um, it's always been very dangerous and risky, um, but they're just going further and further out. Where you know, wherever there is oils, where they will go, and they're um, going hundreds of miles further out into the Gulf and thousands of feet deeper. And I am convinced that they don't—they're not any better prepared to deal with that offshore drilling as they are with the drilling that's closer into shore. And they're certainly not prepared for the enormous uncertainties related to that level of increased risk. And we haven't required regulations to hold them into check, and we're not giving regulators the tools to deal with it either. And that none of this is worth the risk, particularly when we're at a stage in history where we're being told very clearly at a minimum, three-fourths of all fossil fuels need to stay in the ground if we're going to avert the worst of climate crisis. Given that knowledge, shouldn't we put the most just ridiculously risky forms of extracting oil off the table and while we're still dependent on it, stick to the stuff we actually know how to do? So what, if anything, do you think BP and the oil industry at large has learned from Deepwater Horizon. Um, optimistically, we might think, oh, they're going to get serious about safety, transparency, risk assessment, environment. Um, but but I, I hear you saying that uh, they haven't changed their their emergency plans. But um, what do you what what do you think they have learned? I have no idea. Um, I know that um, a lot of other companies use BP as a foil to say what you don't want to do in the case of a disaster from a PR perspective. And I see it referred to a lot there that they learned not to talk to the press like Tony Hayward did um, to say things like, I, you know, I want my life back too. And, but, you know, great. 
uh, you know, that's nice for them, I suppose. Um, I've seen that as a lesson. Um, and I think in terms of um, PR, one of the worst lessons was actually the one that was learned by Exxon in the wake of the Valdez, which there's, um, I write about this in Tyranny of Oil. There was court documents that showed um, tapes of Exxon officials standing on the beaches and saying, you know, I don't care what you get out here, but you need to get something out here so that it looks like we're doing something. You need to get people cleaning rocks. You need to get, you know, just get stuff out here. Whether it does anything good or not, you know, we need to show a response. And a lot of what BP did that was actually wrong was attempts to to meet that type of requirement, just look like we're doing something. So as opposed to having the equipment they needed to actually stop the blowout, people might, rem might remember these things that just seemed so ridiculous, called top hats and junk shots, when they were throwing you know pieces of tire onto the blowing out oil well, and everyone looked at it and said, this seems completely ridiculous. Well, it was completely ridiculous, and they knew it was too. There was way too much oil for the things that they were trying to do, the things they were trying to do had never been tried at that depth before. Basically, everyone knew it would fail, but they you know, risked the lives of the workers who were involved. They spent lots of money. They you know, threatened the environment or harmed the environment to just show like they were doing something. So I think the lesson we need to learn is if we don't regulate them to actually prove that they have the capacity to actually do the things that they say they can do on paper, we're just asking for these PR, not only real nightmares, the real disaster itself, but then the PR um, mess. And that what our regulations currently amount to really is little more than a promise to do the right thing rather than the actual proof that you can. Because I think we know that if we, we required the proof that they can do the right thing, they won't be able to come up with it and we would have to say you can't do it. And that's something our, currently our regulators don't want to do, and certainly the companies don't want us to do. And um, we have to get over collectively as a nation this myth that we've been under since the Reagan administration, which is that regulation is a bad thing. Uh, we desperately need good regulation, and regulation costs money. You have to pay for it. You have to pay for regulators. You have to pay for oversight. And we have to be willing to spend money on the government's capacity to regulate these companies. That's a lesson I hope we've learned. When I look at the oil industry and its operations, um, frankly, I see very little change. I see very little lessons learned. Because if you think about all the talk of lessons learned that happened after um, after the Texas City refinery disaster, uh, after the Alaska oil spill, BP's Alaska pipeline oil spill, um, it's the same language that BP is saying now um, in terms of new focus on safety, new focus on training. Um, these are all things that were supposed to have happened at, after each other in incident. Uh, and I don't see a change. I don't see a change in their, in their practices. And I think this is my last question. Um, and what about uh, the press? How do you feel the media has done in, in following this over the last five years? Uh, you know, it was all over until the the uh, well was capped. And then, you know, how, how do you think uh, the, the press has followed this? Um, one of the problems with press coverage is that 
one of the best outlets doing the the greatest coverage was the Times Picayune newspaper in New Orleans, which has been almost stripped out of existence, like a similar trend in obviously across the media. And there's a reason why we need local news. This is a really good example of it. The an outlet on the ground every day that cares about this in, the this uh, disaster, that cares about the people, that cares about the environment, writing amazing work, and they basically almost no longer exist. They're still doing some coverage, but they've shrunk from what they were, and that's a tragic loss. Um, and I think our ability to see the, the sort of constant coverage that needs to happen to really understand that this is an un, still unfolding disaster suffers enormously because of that lack of press coverage, local press coverage in particular. And the national media attention, which was actually very good, and there was you know there was very good coverage from the New York Times, from you know major outlets that were doing very good investigative work, was short lived, and that has reinforced BP's very strongly desired approach to this problem, which is that it's long since over, and without that constant media scrutiny to say maybe it isn't, and in fact it is not, you know, the public is, is, is given a, a, a disservice. Um, there's going to be a movie coming out starring Mark Wahlberg um, based on um, a New York Times series of stories, which I understand is going to look at the just what happened on the rig, the actual explosion of the rig. Um, and I hope that's good. You know, I hope that because because those 36 hours were horrific. 11 men died. Um, many were injured. It was a real embodiment of what this type of deep, deep, risky offshore drilling really uh, entails. And, you know, maybe we'll get a great Hollywood film that will remind people that this is, you know, a, a tragedy. Um, and maybe we'll get a great Hollywood film that will make people think twice about President Obama's recent proposal to open up offshore drilling off the coast of the Atlantic for the first time in history when they see what it really looks like when a rig explodes at sea. So, you know, maybe Mark Wahlberg is our, is our hope for the future. <laughs> I'll leave you with that thought. <laughs> All right. I just, uh, that might be a scary way to close, but... <laughs> okay uh oil industry analyst antonia yuhas is author of several books including black tide the devastating impact of the gulf oil spill and the tyranny of oil the world's most powerful industry and what we must do to stop it she also has a article coming out in harper's magazine soon based on her time in a submarine under the gulf of mexico last year uh, to check up on the effects of the Deepwater Horizon spill. We'll link to her website, antoniauhas.net, at our website, radioproject.org. Thanks so much for spending the time to speak with us. Thanks for having me. <laughs>